Today's scripture is from the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here ends the reading. May we find power in this ancient advice. Amen. Being an ally is hard. There's no getting around that fact, so I figured I'd start off by getting it out of the way. I'm nervous about this sermon and have struggled with trying to figure out what to say and, and how to say it. I knew that I could give you a sermon that was academic and theoretical and that that would be perfectly fine. I debated with myself about the possibility of tossing away the traditional sermon model and rather using this as class time, letting you all talk to one another and learn from the person next to you. But I knew that tactic would scare some of you away completely. And so I've landed on this giving what I feel like I have to offer you this morning, which is sharing with you all some of my experiences of learning to become a better ally. None of what I share today will be original because I've only learned what I know due to the great teachers that I have taken the time to instruct me. Some of those teachers are traditional professors and, and instructors like Dr. Christina Jimenez in our congregation from whom I've learned so much and my professors at Colorado College and now ILIF School of Theology. But mostly the teachers that I'm talking about are the friends and acquaintances that have been brave and kind enough to challenge me, to call me in, and to lend me their glasses for just a moment so that I can take in the world from their perspective. Before we go on much further, I suppose we should define what we mean by ally so that we can then talk about how to become a better one. This is the definition that we are using in the white privilege class that ended today, which is a conglomeration adapted from a number of different sources. You ready for this? An ally is someone who takes a stand against social injustice directed at others. An ally works to be an agent of social change rather than an agent of oppression. When a form of oppression has multiple target groups, as do racism, ableism, and heterosexism, target group members can be allies to other targeted social groups they are not part of. 
For instance, lesbians can be allies to bisexual people. African-American people can be allies to Native Americans. Blind people can be allies to people who use wheelchairs. I'm confident that many of you in this room have acted as an ally before. This is a congregation full of beautiful and brave people who have stood up for justice on various issues throughout the years. Some of you in this room are straight people who fought hard alongside your LGBTQ friends for marriage equality. Some of you were part of the struggle within this very congregation to become an open and affirming church. Thank you for your work. Some of you white folks walked in protests and marches with Dr. King and Malcolm X. Some of you able-bodied people gave money to the capital campaign that added the accessibility corridor and elevator to our facility. You are not new to this allyship process. And yet, as we have been in this journey for the past number of weeks discussing the topic of white privilege, I have heard a considerable amount of pushback. I have heard, well, I don't want to feel white guilt. I have heard, I didn't choose to be white. I have heard, I just don't know what to do. When we talk about racial justice and say black lives matter and quote Martin Luther King Jr., I hear yes and amen. But when we talk about white privilege and how that is the underpinning of the racist system within which we live, I hear crickets or sometimes even defensive rhetoric. White folks, we have got to learn that the system is unequal and unfair, not because one side has got less than what they should have, but in actuality because one side, our side, has got more than we should have, and that we have been intentionally hoarding what we've got. I've known for a couple of months that I would be preaching today, and I'm grateful to Pastors Nairi and Jackie for allowing me to stand in this pulpit this morning. I don't take that for granted. And as much as I love to preach, I have struggled for weeks with whether or not I should be here. As I'm learning to stand in solidarity with my friends of color, in word and in deed, I am learning to amplify and lift up voices of those who are not often listened to. I wondered whether or not I should cede this time that I had been given to a person of color so that their voice might be raised in this predominantly white space. And then I argued with myself that that action could be seen as tokenistic, allowing a black voice to be heard from this pulpit only in the context of a series on white privilege and racial justice. And so, obviously, I am still here. I am here as your friend and your colleague to say to you that we still have so much work to do. And I'm here to say the hard things to you. As we've been talking about white privilege, many of us have been discovering new things about our family histories or seeing old things in new ways as we have taken on new prisms and different perspectives. Pastors Jackie and Nairi both have shared with us parts of their family stories from the perspective of race and ethnicity. One of the things that I have discovered recently is that on both sides of my family, 
I have great-grandfathers who were born on homesteads in North Dakota. I had always grown up hearing from my dad's mother about the homestead in Hope, North Dakota, but I had never thought about what that word homestead actually meant. I simply saw it as a little house on the prairie, Laura Ingalls Wilder type of history. And then I gained new perspective. I found documentation about that homestead in Hope, North Dakota. Documentation that showed that my great-great-grandfather received that land through something called the Homestead Act of 1862, in which President Lincoln opened up land west of the Mississippi to be claimed by citizens for farming and agriculture. The land that my ancestors settled on in North Dakota had been directly taken by the U.S. government from the native peoples that had inhabited it. And this is how my part in oppression became real for me. My family has directly benefited monetarily from the marginalization and disenfranchisement of others. As a simple act of allyship recently, I donated to the Defense Fund for Water Protectors at Standing Rock Understanding that my generational wealth and privilege had been built upon the backs of the families of the people who are working to protect the water for all humanity. This is not comfortable to talk about. I get it. And yet Jesus was not particularly comforting to the Pharisees who were abusing their political power and exploiting the people they were meant to serve even if they were well-meaning and born into the pharisaical life and didn't know anything else. But if we're going to take our task of learning how to be allies to people who are different than we are, we are going to have to learn how to get comfortable being uncomfortable. The scripture text that I chose for today is one that I see as being our biblical mandate to the work of allyship. As the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in the city of Philippi, Greece, we hear the words of a leader to a people that he deeply loves. This Philippian church is close to Paul's heart, and his language to them is full of encouragement and support. A couple of the people that we know were or had been a part of this church are Lydia, a wealthy merchant, as well as a young slave girl who had had a demon cast out of her. This separation of class would have been a significant barrier between the two women of the first century, even as it would be today. So let's listen again to how Paul exhorts them. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself 
and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As I read these words, I hear Paul speaking mostly to Lydia and the other wealthy and privileged people in the church at Philippi. The slave girl already knows what it means to be humbled, to have lost dignity and be less than others. But Lydia, well, Lydia has known privilege. It is to her that Paul is speaking, encouraging her to be like the Christ in whom she has found life and hope. And which part of Jesus' life is he encouraging her to emulate? It is the part in which Jesus lays down his divinity, his right to do things with all power and might as he takes on the human condition, the humanity that must learn, must remain humble, and must die. A classmate of mine from Ilef, also named Paul, has said this about privilege. Privilege is that thing that when you have it, you might not know it, but you know you don't want to lose it. Mary Pfeiffer describes it like this. Privilege is being born on third base and thinking you hit triples. I think that the Apostle Paul continues to speak to us today. He challenges those of us with privilege in a whole slew of directions to be like Jesus, who didn't grasp onto his privilege, but rather deliberately let it go in order to be in relationship. Paul challenges Lydia to let go of her status and wealth in order to be of one mind with the slave girl whose name we know not. He exhorts us to, pursue, to not pursue our own fame and well-being, but to serve those around us, trusting that if we all serve one another, we will all have our needs sufficiently met. This brings us to the practical, nitty-gritty work of discussing what it means to strive to be a better ally in today's world with today's challenge of fighting for justice. Recently, I have heard people of color comment that they don't want any more allies, as that term can be appropriated and used by people who see ally as a noun, something you are, but that they are looking for collaborators, people who will show up to listen and build with and walk alongside. I appreciate this shift because it calls our attention to what is needed, action. Each of us has different action to take. A professor of mine, Jared Vasquez, described it like this. We each have to hoe the ground that we're on. I should not look in front of me and feel shame for not being where the person ahead of me is. Neither should I look behind me and cast shame upon the person who is diligently hoeing the ground that they are upon. Rather, we must pay attention to the place where we are at taking caution not to stay in one place for too long, lest we dig a big hole that we might fall into, or moving on too soon, abandoning the soil that needs to be prepared right there. I know you're asking me now, what the heck does this look like in real life, Candace? Well, here are a few ways that collaborators and people doing allying work can show up. Allies take responsibility for learning about their own and other groups' heritage, culture, and experience, and how oppression works in everyday life. 
There are books and workshops and opportunities galore from which to seek out information and education. People who show up for justice come prepared, having done their homework themselves and not expecting historically marginalized people to do the work of educating them. One time, I asked an inappropriate and invasive anatomical question of a transgender friend of mine. Very quickly, he replied, Candace, you're not allowed to ask me that question. That's what Google is for. <laughs> Use the resources that are available to you and do the work of educating yourself. On that note, people who are wanting to act for justice are prepared to listen and learn when they are corrected and challenged. You will make mistakes. You will use offensive language. You will need to apologize. This is where the humility part of Paul's exhortation comes in. As you are unlearning and working to correct the ways in which your privilege has oppressed and marginalized others, you will run up against things you don't know, language you haven't learned, mistakes you haven't yet learned from. Don't get paralyzed. Don't stop trying. Take feedback graciously. Learn and recognize that someone you are collaborating with has seen enough allyship from you to believe that you might actually listen when they call you in. And here's the final point that I'd like to make. People working to be better allies are willing to take risks that may affect their own place, position, and authority within their dominant group. This means we say hard things to our neighbors and our friends and to the systems and powers that be. It means that we use our privilege to fight for change in the systems within which we have voice and power. Are you a doctor? How do you work to subvert the system that keeps impoverished people from accessing your care? Are you a realtor? How do you challenge the lending systems and banks that would steer people of color into subprime loans? Are you a teacher? How do you work to overcome the system that suspends and expels black kids three times more than white kids? Overcoming and transforming these systems is not easy. If it were, we'd have done it already. It will take risk and solidarity and collaboration. It will take sacrifice. It will take work, hard work. But as Paul reminds us, these are the actions of people who are in love, people who are of one mind together, people who believe that the work is worth doing and is capable of being done. As a very simple and entry-level act of allyship, I encourage you to visit the table in the Founders Room where you can sign up as a member of the local chapter of the NAACP and pay your $30 in yearly dues. The president of our local chapter, Lisa Villanueva, is there. She's ready to talk to you about what the NAACP does and how your money supports the work of racial justice in our community. You can also find information at that table about the local chapter of SURGE, which, which stands for Showing Up for Racial Justice. Our fellow congregant, Amanda Kerrigan, is a co-founder, and she can give you more information and details about how to get involved locally. Friends, 
May we be brave in facing our destructive prisms and lenses, knowing that the future of our neighbors and siblings and friends, and yes, even our very own future depends on it. May we embrace truth when we hear it. May we lay down our privileges and not grasp onto them, following the example of our Jesus. Let's go do the work, friends. Amen.